Hello, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. We believe all women lawyers deserve to be wealthy women lawyers. Our mission is to provide thought-provoking, powerful, and practical information to help you in creating your own sustainable, wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm so you can live your best life. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm so excited for you to meet our guest today. So let's get started. Hi, and welcome, everybody. We're so happy to have Billy Tarasio here today. Billy is the founder and uh, owner of Modern Law and Access Legal. Um, And I've invited Billy to speak with us today because she has such a wonderful and interesting business model. She began experimenting through Modern Law with uh, the traditional legal mode and sort of offering limited scope and pay-as-you-go services and flat fees, as well as traditional choices. And that eventually led to, from what I understand, the creation of a sister company called I Do Over, which I love that name, I Do Over. She's, <laughs> you can tell she's a divorce attorney, right? Um, which is entirely devoted to helping self-representing clients um, with divorce issues, as well as still running modern law. So I want to talk about the differences between those and uh, just some of your discoveries along the journey to um, creating this law firm. So welcome, Billy. We're so happy that you're here. Um, Why don't you start out just telling us a little bit about about yourself? Well, thank you so much for for inviting me on the show and for that wonderful introduction. You make me sound so cool. So I appreciate that (laughs) very much. You are cool. You are cool. (laughs) Uh, It has been a journey. Like your, your description was so good because Modern Law is 11 years old now and it's been 11 years of experimenting and, um, Many, many, many things have worked and many, many, many things have not worked, but every experiment has made us more successful. And we have just culturally kind of leaned into this model of curiosity and experimentation and adaptation. And that has really paid off, especially this year. Yeah. Oh, I imagine. I imagine it's really paid off this year for you because you were really, uh, I found that those who were not poised for working remotely and distributed workers and and taking full advantage of technology really struggled. But so many of my clients who uh, and people in our community who already were, you know, using their technology to work in different ways, actually, some of them did better than ever, had a better Mm -hmm. year than ever, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to get into all of that. But before we get to that, I would love it if you would tell me where you know, how you started your journey as a lawyer mm-hmm. and got here and what led you to open your own law firm? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I kind of always knew I wanted to be a lawyer and I went into college like with that decision made. So, um, but then my parents went through a divorce during that time period. And so all of a sudden the, the, idea of being a divorce attorney was very relevant to me. And I saw just how much, like I never, you know, I didn't go to, I didn't go into college thinking I'm going to be a divorce attorney, but after kind of watching and experiencing as a young adult, my parents' divorce and realizing just how relevant it is to people's lives and the impact that the attorneys can have on people's real lives, um, the human component, I was like, yes, I want to do that. And so I have, you know, I think I made the decision when I was 20, I'm 40 now, I just turned 40. So I've been um, 
a practicing divorce attorney since 2005. Now, why did I open my own firm? I was kind of an easy decision. My um, oldest son was born my third year in law school. And I always knew that I, you know, the system of, um, you know, plugging into the system of big law was not going to be in my best interest or the fastest way to get where I wanted to go. Uh-huh. So that that was always at the forefront of my mind. Like when I entered college, I knew I was going to law school. So I did college very quickly, but not by working super hard or being super smart, just by creating a system that got me the credits I needed to graduate right. early and then get myself to law school. So I think I've always been built to kind of um, look at the way things are and figure out, is there a better way to do this? And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, that that capacity to be able to handle what other people call failure or what you may call failure and be resilient and rise above it and keep going, um, I think is the huge difference between people who find success early and people who, you know, struggle over and over because, uh, you know, we can so quickly get into our head that, okay, I tried this thing and it didn't work. So I'm never going to do, take another risk again. (laughs) And one of the things that comes to mind is uh, hiring a team. Mm -hmm. I I hear this. I have this conversation all the time with women law firm owners who, well, I hired somebody and, you know, maybe they hired two or three, you know, they've had a couple of attempts at hiring an associate or they hired a bookkeeper once and that bookkeeper screwed them over. And so they're never doing it. You know, they're always going to take control of that again. Um, And hiring attorneys is a huge issue because some people will say, I I tried that and it didn't work. And I always say to them, well, so you've only had one romantic relationship then, right? Because think (laughs) of how ridiculous that is. Like I had one date when I was in high school and it just didn't work out. So therefore I am never (laughs) dating again. You know, it's just, it's ludicrous, but somehow we lock ourselves into that. And I think it's because of fear of failure. Have you had that experience? experience? Um, I know you have a team that you, you know, has worked with you to help grow your firm and you could have done that without that. So tell us about that. And and do you remember like your first hire? (laughs) I mean, let's be clear. My biggest failures have been with regards to hiring and training. And my biggest heartaches have come from, you know, people leaving and, um, it is the hardest part of the job. Um, but I think in order to build something that really does create wealth, that really does offer you freedom, that gives you the flexibility to do what you love, you have to be audacious and undyingly optimistic um, and just refuse to see things you know, there are setbacks, there are absolutely setbacks, but that's life. And we can either like live in the setback or we can move on as quickly as possible um, and learn something from it. And I think having employees, I have four kids now, and I think having employees is so like parenting where you screw up over and over and over again as a parent with each kid who's different. And you realize that, um, you know, there is no one size fits all model. And that is the same thing with employees. Like you just have to get better. Right. Right. I, so, uh, I do not have children and I have always, I've been so amazed when somebody tells me, yeah, you know, I had my, I was 
gave birth to my first child the first year and I was pregnant with my, you know, second by the second year. And I'm always amazed when women uh, do that as they're going through law school and to have four kids and then grow, grow, not just one business, but two businesses. And I don't know if you have others, but growing that and hiring people and, and hiring a team, I would think you would have to be really organized and be really a master of time management. I think that's true. I, I mean, I'm not, um, I'm not a super organized person, but I am a very focused person. Um, and I think I have a high tolerance for things not working. I probably, so there's a lot of different types of delegators. There's the delegators who really hate delegating because they think they can do it better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, or there's the other end of the spectrum where, um, you're just like, here, figure it out. And I tend to be like that person, um, which of course can be messy, but I have a high tolerance for mess. Like it's okay if it's not perfect. I don't expect it to be perfect. I can live with mistakes. So, um, and then and that's probably just a personality thing, but I have, mm-hmm. I have really encouraged everybody around me to push themselves to their absolute limit and to accept their mistakes and turn them into learning experiences. And so it's been really fun to be able to build up people around me. That is that you said a mouthful there because I meet, I encounter so many women who are, you know, high achieving women. We grow up sort of working for the A and the gold star and the, the external affirmation and, and this feeling that we need to be perfect or not show up at all. Like there's that. And when you go into business for yourself, that thing that was your biggest strength becomes your biggest weakness because perfection keeps you from experimenting. It keeps you from publishing. It keeps you from growing trusted relationships. It keeps you from delegating like you talk about. Um, have you always been this way or was there, or did this, did you evolve in your growth journey um, as an entrepreneur? Because I'm curious about when you started out, are you, do you, what differences do you see from who you were then to who you are now? That's a good question. Um, I do think part of, I do think a, a huge part of who we are is who we are, what we came with. And um, I see this in, in my, my children, especially my little girl. Like I've always been a little bit audacious and a little bit like, you know, somebody who would come in and just kind of break things and be like, what? <laughs> you know, I was a terrible <laughs> teenager. My parents were like, get out of my house. So um, I'm a little obstinate. And so those things have always been there. I was never the perfect child who was like, give me the gold stars and A's. I was like, okay, how can I get a 90%? So I'm not working any harder than I need to, to get the GPA I want. <laughs> so that's always been there. But um the humility, like that comes with, with its own consequences. M- my tendency, my natural tendency is just to kind of, to not be as sensitive to other people's feelings and to details and to nuances and understanding that other people can't function this way. And if you go in and you throw this at people and you expect them to, to, to think like you, they don't. And so how do you, how do I to take a step back and create a structure that other people can succeed within because this is not normal. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I, I, 
it is interesting to, as you start building a team, it's so critical to really have an understanding of your strengths and your weaknesses and hire for those strengths and weaknesses. Hire people who can compensate for, you know, what's not your wheelhouse, what's not your, you know, highest and best use of your time. Uh, do you find it challenging? Uh, one of the things I know that for me is, I have someone who helps me hire because when I interview people, I gravitate toward people who are like me, you know, and I want to, I want them in because I'm like, oh, you know, we think alike, right? But to balance out my weaknesses, I need people who bring something to the table I don't have. Mm -hmm. And I've, so I found it helpful to have, you know, an outside person to help me with that process. Um, how have you, have you ever struggled with that in some of the people that you've hired that, um, weren't a good fit, maybe personality or culture or whatever, but you need the skill that they offer and sort of, how did you overcome that? Yes, yes, yes. And yes. Um, <laughs> I'm asking you some very challenging questions today. I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, hiring, I have, yeah, my biggest mistakes have been in hiring and in management and, um, they're the most heartbreaking because, you pour into people and you depend on these people in order for your business to run. And I've hired the wrong people and only afterwards figured out why they were the wrong people. So in my law firm at this point, you know, we've gone through so much, we've evolved so much in the 10 years, but one of the things that we did that was most important was figuring out our values. And you hear this thrown around all the time, but figuring out your values is not figuring out who you want to be. It's figuring out at your core fundamentally who you are and those things that are unchangeable about you. That, mm -hmm. that Like even if you wanted to change them, you couldn't. Even if it wasn't in your best interest to act this way, this is who you are. Because when people, um, when that clash is there, it's never going to work out. So I have a high risk tolerance. I'm always going to push us to be evolving and to be different and to embrace change and to be client centered and to look for different ways of doing things. And so when I've hired people in the past who are, who are not comfortable with that, just really, really uncomfortable with the fact that like, I'm saying things that are different and this must be unethical. And like, why are we, why are we asking clients for their feedback? They don't know what they're talking about. Like when I've hired people who have fundamentally clashed with those values, it never works. Even when they're qualified attorneys, um, qualified individuals who have a lot of skills. So at this point, we have written down a law firm constitution and the constitution of the United that. States is so amazing because it sets out a couple of things. It sets out why you exist, you know, um, what the values are that will guide all of the decisions that are made and some of the structural components that are never changing. Like the, the constitution of the United States says we have three branches of government. The law firm constitution says we're a single owner law firm. I'm never going to be a law firm that has a partnership track, but I do want your input and here's how that works. So, um, and it talks about our values and that has helped a lot. Hmm. I love that. I love that you've, well, first of all, I love that you call it the law firm constitution, um, but I love that you have really sat down and done that core value work to know mm -hmm. really who you are and what you want. So you have such clarity on that. 
that I imagine if people come in to interview with you, you can immediately tell if they're aligned with your your purpose and your goals. And that is so critical uh, because I think you can train skill, but you can't you can't train passion for mm-hmm. what you do. I remember mm-hmm. one time I was uh, I had had my own firm and I sold out to my partner and. For a while there, I was kind of just trying to decide what to do. And a friend of mine invited me to interview with her law firm. And she was, I had been sort of practicing on my own kind of estate planning. And I had done family law before, but she had a family law firm. And it was incredible. It was just like, she's a family lawyer. Like from the end, beginning in, that's all I'm doing. I'm so passionate about it. It's my thing. And I interviewed with her and I still was, you know, well, can I still practice, you know, estate planning and how would that work? What would it look like? And, and I did a, a personality test and she got that and it just wasn't a good fit. It wasn't a good fit. And she was just like, no, it's not going to work. And looking and, and which was fine with me because I was like, yeah, yeah, I don't really know if I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but with her clarity on who she wanted to be and who she was and where she was going with her business made it so easy for her to make that decision, even though she mm-hmm. liked me, even though we were mm-hmm. friends, even though, you know, we would probably go out and have drinks together and have a great time. It didn't work. And I, so I think that doing that homework and getting really clear on who you are is so critical. Um, I want to shift a little bit because you brought up something. Uh, I've seen your, I've seen a video that you did. You've probably done more than one on this, but on the net promoter score. Mm-hmm. And I know you are a fan of the net promoter score. So I, I would love it if you would tell, I have also talked with people about the net promoter score, but I would love it if you would talk about that and the impact that that's had on your business. Cause I think it had a pretty big impact on your business when you started doing that work. Yes, absolutely. So to even take a step back from that, um, one of our core principles is that we will make decisions based on data, that we will collect data and make decisions based on data, data informed decisions. It's not that data will guide decisions that it won't, it, it's not like a crystal ball, but it gives you more information. Um, and net promoter score is a data tracking tool, but it's, it's, um, it's a customer service measurement that is used in industries, all sorts of industries. And the way that it works is you've probably been asked this question, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to refer us to your family and friends? And the reason people ask that question is because if the answer is a nine or a 10, then they are evaluating the quality of service and the value and the results all in that one question. And the, the, way that the formula works, it's more than just asking the question and collecting feedback, which is awesome and amazing and great in and of itself. But there's a formula to create a score where nines and tens are promoters, anything under a six is a detractor, sevens and eights are neutrals. And then you do some division and you get a score and you can look at your score over time and know, are we going to grow or are we going to shrink? Like that's how powerful this tool is. Very powerful. Very powerful. I imagine, first of all, I want to know, well, tell me this, how did you decide, how did you find out about Net Promoter Score and decide that this was something you wanted to do? Why did you decide that that was, you know, so important as opposed to just like, you know, 
I just, we just need to get reviews, right? Which is where a lot of people just go, can we just, we just ask every client for a review? And we just get reviews, a Google review. Yes. So why was Net Promoter Score to you? What, call, what called you to that? Um, why did you decide to do it? One of the most influential people for me and my firm has been Lee Rosen. And he, um, he was just so valuable. And he is the person who um, exposed me to the concept of net promoter score. And he shared a Harvard Business Review um, uh, article that, that explained why this is the one metric you need to predict the growth or the shrinking of your firm. So he was paying attention to what was going on in the broader business community and how to apply it to his law firm. And that, um, that is something that I, that I do, that I try to pay attention to because we can learn from businesses and industries outside of law. Right. Right. Yeah. I love that. That is, that is, um, I think that's so important because I, I tend to think that a, a lot of attorneys, well, I know because I have conversations with a lot of attorneys who are, uh, who think we're different from the average bear. Like mm-hmm. we're different. The, the law firm business is different. Uh, my practice area is different and that won't work for my practice area or I'm different and therefore none of this will work for me. All the different tools and strategies that have worked for thousands of other businesses. Right. And that's an open-mindedness to say, well, I don't know because I don't have all the facts. So let me learn. Let me learn more about this before I decide if it will work for me or not work for me. Um, After you started, well, first of all, were you able to collect data from clients with ease? How did you go about collecting that data from from clients? Yeah. So we've done it in a couple ways. So specifically on the net promoter score, um, I think the way we're doing it now is, is the best way we, there's a difference between collecting client feedback and getting a net promoter score. And that's Mm -hmm. really important because um, we only collect a net promoter score at the end of each case. And it's part of our closing process and it is essential to close your cases Um, But it's something that's really easy to to not do, and it can create a real mess with your your data and your metrics. You have no idea how many open cases you have, or you don't close things out nicely. And it's as important to close things out nicely as it is to onboard nicely. And so we ask for a net promoter score at the end of every single case as part of the closing process. Um, And we do that by a phone call. So our customer service team calls and says, hi, this is Kaylee. I'm calling from Modern Law. Please give me a call back. People call back when you when you leave that message, um, and then you ask the question and you go through go through the process. Uh, you collect the feedback, you ask the question, and not everybody gives us a score, but we ask every single person, and we'll try to collect um, that feedback from by reaching out at least three times. And I would say ninety percent of our clients do respond. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's awesome, and I love that tip, and I love the. Uh, people always call back if they get a call from a, an attorney's office. <laughs> right. You know? So you're not saying you have a relationship with them. It's not like you're, it's not a cold call kind of situation. So you already have a relationship. So they're expecting, you know, that, that it's something important to do. Right. And yeah. you're not leaving a message that says, I just have one quick question for you about our service. Don't do that. They won't call you back. They're busy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, they're too busy and they, they, they may even think to themselves, I'll call her back later, even if they like you, you know, 
So there was something uh, interesting that you said about the net promoter score, uh, promoters and the neutral ones and then detractors. Mm-hmm. So when you find out that you've got detractors, mm-hmm. what do you then do with that information? Mm-hmm. What do you do with it? Well, one of the things that we've done is we've added a customer service specialist to the roster. That's a part-time position. And their job is to reach out throughout the duration of the case to just collect feedback and make sure everything's going okay. So my goal is never to get to the end of the case and have a detractor that I'm not fully aware of. Sometimes we're going to have detractors. We end up having to withdraw because the client's not you know, following directions or um, they're just unhappy with the system and like there's nothing we can, there's going to be detractors. But we should never have detractors because we've failed to communicate or we've failed to listen, failed to respond to their needs. Like that we can control. So, um, and when we do get detractors, I then, you know, the customer service specialist is, is trained to say, well, let me get you, let me get you an appointment with Billy. I'm sure she'd love to hear more about this. And that usually helps as well. Like we want to, reviews are important, really important. And so we do want to get great reviews and we do want to minimize poor reviews. But the way to do that is is only by being very careful and offering excellent customer service. Right. So you're not getting those surprise reviews that are like a bomb dropped on you and you're like, you know, I got this review. Can you guys go in and leave me a bunch of great reviews so that that one gets pushed down? I see that. I see women attorneys doing that a lot, getting other women attorneys to go. And I'm like, that's terrible. To me, that's terrible because it's a terrible practice because it's inauthentic. It's misleading to have a bunch of women attorneys that, you know, go and leave you reviews just to push down your bad review. Rather, we really should take a look at it and say, where's this coming from? And what can I learn from it? And how can, and then I love that you've implemented a system to deal with that kind of thing. So there are no, these surprises aren't going to pop up as frequently for you. Right. It's not that we are in no way perfect. And so things things absolutely happen. But um, the other thing that this, this system of closing cases and collecting that promoter score does is it also offers a way to systematically gain reviews because when people are very happy, um, the customer service specialist says, thank you so much for this feedback. It's really fantastic. And it would mean so much to us if you wouldn't mind leaving a review online. And we appreciate so much that you even took the time to call us back today. You're going to be getting a $25 gift card to Amazon um, just because we have loved working with you. And I know your time is valuable. And thank you so much. Then they get an email that has a link to where they can post it online and their exactly what they said. So all they have to do is copy and paste it with a link. So how easy can we make it for people to leave positive reviews for us online? Right. That is awesome. And I love that you, uh, your customer uh, care specialist, or your customer service specialist gets that and writes it down. Cause uh, you know, so, t- so many times people will, you know, they'll just overflow with praise when you're talking to them. Thank you so much. And, and then you ask them to write a review and they go, Billy was really great. I liked her and I would recommend her, you know, and then you're like, but you just said I saved your life. And how come you didn't write that? So I love that you're doing it because people just aren't writers. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people still communicate that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And, 
And so that's a great way to capture that passion that somebody has when they're on the phone with you. Um, you're, so I think a lot of attorneys will find it interesting that you have a customer service mm-hmm. person. You may have more than one. I don't know. So tell us a little bit about your team and kind of the size of your team and at what stage in your growth you started adding that person in. Sure. So we, you could make this person part of your intake team. Um, that would be, that would be a very appropriate use of your intake team's time. Mm -hmm. Um, we have this as a separate person, partly because she's my stepdaughter and she's a college student in school and needed a part-time job, but this is perfect for her. Um, (laughs) yeah. 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 So, um, my team, uh, I've essentially you've got buckets of people like on your sales. Every business has to have a sales arm, a production arm and a finance arm. So I've got an intake team and, and the sales arm ends when they've hired us. So for me, I have designated people that do the phones, that do the consultations. And then when the people hire us, then they're handed off to the production team, which is a combination of uh, lawyers and paralegals. We're experimenting with the concept of legal assistance, adding those to the pods of attorneys and paralegals. I don't yet know if that's going to be um, something that we keep or not. We're just going to try it. Um, and then on the on the uh, finance side, we've got billing people that collect and one office manager who handles all of the HR, the tech, which is for us is Macs and cloud-based um, software, and um, and office management, supplies and things like that. Right, right. So when you started your firm, um, and you started what year? 2010. 2010, okay. So your 10-year mark, yay, congratulations, happy anniversary. Thank um, you. So when you started your firm, how did you start it? Like, was it you and a paralegal? Was it just you? Were you a true solo? How, what was your approach when you initially started your firm? And then how quickly did you grow? So my start was unusual. Um, I had moved here with my ex-husband uh, from Oregon and Arizona and Oregon had just were just talking about reciprocity. The rules weren't even finalized yet, but it was going to be a thing. And so I opened the firm in Arizona without being licensed here and being unable to practice here. It was in 2009, 2010, right at the beginning of 2010. And so I was immediately hiring contract attorneys to provide limited scope legal services. So it was a, a completely different model that I was trying and it was a total experiment. Um, and I spent all of my time marketing. And so it grew wow. very, very quickly. And, and that wouldn't work today. Like that was an, uh, that was an odd um, time. I, there were all these attorneys available because the, the financial situation in Arizona in 2010, they were still really hurting from the 2008 fallout. So there were all these attorneys who were available to work for next to no money. And that was not going to be a good long-term model to provide what I wanted to provide, which was a fantastic place to work where people stayed for a long time and had great benefits and made a lot of Mm. money and could pay their loans and had work-life balance. I wanted all of those things. And you can't do that with a low-cost, limited-scope model. Right. Right, right, and I, and you point out something that I that I think is very important for people to to catch, 
one of the things when I start working with my clients, um, women law firm owners, is we go through a SWOT analysis. We look at strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And one of the, the way I interpret opportunities, opportunities or advantages, is I think that everyone has something unique to them and their circumstance that is creates an advantage for them. I started my law firm in 2007, uh, November 2007. And so, you know, you're right on, there's 2008 coming mm-hmm. up, right? And I had a friend tell me, I mean, this is like in the first two or three weeks of my practice, I was doing family law and I was doing estate planning. I was doing door law because I didn't know yet what I wanted to do. And I was trying to figure it out. And I had a friend tell me, you know, I was at the courthouse today and the chief judge of Orange County Courthouse in Florida, in Orlando, uh, came out. He was mad. He's like, these, you know, attorneys coming up here from South Florida, they're called, they're phoning in on these foreclosure matters. Mm. And it was starting to really happen a lot. And um, he said, I'm going to go write an administrative order right now and require local counsel because I'm tired of them, you know, disrespecting because they're, you know, they're calling and then they're not there at the time set and all this kind of stuff. And she told, a friend of mine told me that night, uh, we were out for a walk and I was like, oh, that's great information. And so I called the JA and I found out the names of the law firms, you know, the top six or so, those foreclosure uh, law firms that were representing lenders down in South Florida. And I called them, I cold called them and I said, I'll speak to your foreclosure attorney. Got him. And I said, you know, I'd like to, I just found out today about this administrative order and you're going to be finding out about it soon. If you haven't already, I'd like to be your local counsel. And I got clients doing that. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that became bread and butter money, mm-hmm. covered my nut, that amount of money. And also I've learned how to emotion practice. You know, I learned how right. to go to court and, you know, argue and argue motions and things like that. And while I learned how to be a family lawyer and an estate planning lawyer and, you know, whatever I wanted to be. And that was, but that was something that was unique to the time and place. Right. You can't tell people, although we may at some point, (laughs) you can't tell people to follow that same model, but everybody has a story like that. Everybody has something where this is the way I, you know, this is the unique circumstance to me. So it's really important. I think, I think a lot of people would have moved from Oregon to Arizona and said, well, I can't practice until we find out if I can get, I can't do a law firm business. You know, I can't do that. I've got to wait. Right. But you didn't do that. You said, there's gotta be a way. There's gotta Mm -hmm. be something I could do here Mm -hmm. because I need to make money and I need to grow my, you know, I got Mm -hmm. balance to feed and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure you felt some fear in doing that. How do you, how do you cope with that fear? Um, I think that's a tough, tough thing. Like different anxiety is real and it's kind of a warning. And I think, um, I don't, I think my tolerance is much higher than most people. And it wasn't without risk. The bar contacted me. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I read all the rules and I'm a multi-jurisdictional firm because I left mine open in Oregon and like I read all the rules and I'm I'm within the rules. Now, what I should have done is talk to an ethics attorney, but they probably would have told me no. Right, right, right. And so, so the, 
So by so not doing that, you just me. were able to proceed. <laughs> the bar contacted me. It went. It what? It wasn't an issue. Like it went away, but it 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 didn't go away without. I did end up hiring a local ethics attorney who like talked to the bar on my behalf and they were like, what are you doing? Not because it violated any specific rule, but just because it was different. It was different. Mm -hmm. And they were like, I don't know about this. So, um, I don't know that I can advocate that. Uh, did you think what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? Could you be disbarred? Probably not. You need to think about that. Every time you make a decision, you need to think about, could I be disbarred? And how do I find a creative ethics council that will work with me if you want to do a creative model? Um, so I, I want to talk for a minute about, if it's okay, about yeah. I do over and modern law. So, because this is a great example of a workaround. I wanted to be able to offer um, low-cost legal services, even when I was moving from my limited scope model to my more expensive model, because, you know, there was something fundamentally about starting a firm under a premise and then just being like, nah, this didn't work. I'm moving on. You, you know, you, I couldn't do that in good conscience. So I wanted to be able to offer um, forward-facing legal documents that could be automated and uh, customized. Um, and so I spent a lot of money and time creating that software and that didn't really work. Um, but at the time, Arizona, about 20 years ago, licensed certified legal document preparers. And in order to offer forms online, I needed to become a certified legal document preparer company. So fine, found a legal document preparer, became a certified legal doc prep company. And um, right now, but the certified legal document preparers are not allowed to work under the supervision of a lawyer and law firms are not allowed to offer certified legal document prep services through law firms. So the sister company I do over is certified legal document preparers, which is paralegals that help people do their documents and get everything filed. And we charge for uncontested divorces and things like that. And so it was a workaround. I had to open up two companies and set up walls and have the right contracts in order to offer this business model. But the really cool thing is starting January 1, Arizona has massive regulatory reform. And one of the things they're doing, first of all, they got rid of rule 5.4. So non-lawyers are allowed to invest in law firms in Arizona, first state in the country to do wow. that. Big deal. Wow. Very big, big deal. deal. Very big deal. The other thing is that um, they are licensing a new tier of practitioners called legal practitioners who will be allowed to practice law without a law license, which is so a many, Yeah, so many attorneys are really up in arms about both of these. About both oh, of these yeah. Situations. Yeah, you know, if you think about like all we've invested in, all the student loans we have to become this, and now you're just going to open up and say, now any schmo can come in and start giving legal advice, you know? Right. Right. Lawyers are angry. I get it. Even And I was on the task force that helped create these recommendations. And even lawyers in my firm are like, oh, really? <laughs> but yes, that's what's happening. And Modern Law is going to offer LP services. So our pods will be a lawyer, an LP, and a paralegal. Um, and this means that lawyers have to really elevate what they're doing. They have to become neurosurgeons, not not you know, urgent care doctors. And it's an opportunity for lawyers. It's an opportunity for business owners as well. Yeah. It's very interesting to me that you liken it. What comes to my mind are physician, uh, you know, uh, physician assistants, mm -hmm. right? And, and I'm sure so many doctors 
felt very threatened by that when that idea first came. And now there's there are practices now that you go to and you don't see the doctor, you see the PA. Right. <laughs> and you're like, you gotta, you gotta really have something bad wrong to get to see the doctor or make that specific request. Um, so it, we could look at that model and, and say, well, if they can do it, then how can we do it? I, I think it is very scary for, it's very scary for attorneys because you have a lot of solo practitioners that are coming out that are kind of small potatoes and that they're going to feel that this is my competition now. Um, it's already bad enough with people in their minds with legal zoom, you know, we mm-hmm. have legal zoom and how do I compete against that? Blah, 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 blah. Of course there are ways to differentiate yourself. And that is, you know, we always look at value and what, how, what we provide is different and mm-hmm. what the way that we provide it is different. Um, but I, I can see where that's really the whole non-lawyer thing practicing. Mm-hmm. Are there in Arizona, what are the requirements for being able to give legal advice? Can you just, you know, can Uncle Fred just start giving legal advice to people and everybody takes it? I mean, he goes on and creates an Instagram channel and a Facebook page and he's in business. Yeah, no, you have to have certain educational requirements and they're not little. Um, or you have to have practiced 700 hours with family law attorneys full-time the last seven of the 10 years. Um, Then you have an exam that is not unlike the bar exam. Then you become subject to the rules of professional conduct um, under the same disciplinary regulations. So it is going to be similar to the bar exam, similar to becoming a lawyer. Yeah, You have to pass character and fitness. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, that's that that is so critically important. Um, what so I, I do want to talk about both your businesses and one of the things I brought up and we discussed that I mentioned in the intro, and I want to make sure we cover very quickly before we need to end, is I want to talk about uh your fee options and your fee mm-hmm. structures. Now, is modern law uh now that we've split off, I do over what does modern law look like and how do you function? Do you offer bundled services? Are you offering, you know, are you working doing under traditional billing model? Are you doing combination of traditional billing and flat fees? How does that work? Yeah, so we are mostly the traditional model, although we do, I, I told you, I mentioned that I invested a lot of money in creating software and creating document automation. So we do charge flat fees for certain items that we've automated. So Mm -hmm. like, you know, the drafting of a petition or the drafting of a response or, um, you know, simple motions are flat fee, but everything else is billed hourly. Mm -hmm. And why did you decide after kind of doing all your experimenting that that would, that worked for you? So this is uh, such a good example of like something that I've learned. I was sure that um, flat fees were better than the billable hour. I was sure. I fundamentally believed and had a belief that um, that flat fees would be better for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so we did it and it wasn't, it wasn't better for everyone. My clients weren't as happy. My lawyers weren't as happy and we made less money. And had I gone into that with my, you know, evolved experimental mind, I would have set up um, parameters for, for a, a good experiment, but I didn't, this was before I knew that. And, um, it was just a mistake and I lost a lot of money and I, and I, my clients weren't as happy and it wasn't as clear and it was more difficult. There's a more to fight about. It just didn't work. Yeah. So, so interesting to hear you say that because 
you and I had a little conversation before we started about that. And um, I'm a huge advocate of billing. And I think the reason that a lot of women law firm owners, when they start their practice and, uh, you know, say I'm going to do flat fees is because they don't want to take the time and effort to learn how to bill properly mm-hmm. and to track their time and to teach other people how to track time. And they have a negative association with it of big law and working yourself to death and all that kind of stuff that, you know, that is baggage that we carry about. And, but the ones that I see who truly are making a million dollars and more, you know, they're, they're billers or they have billed to the point and they're so narrow in their niche that they are able to take that data and say, I can tell you definitively what it's going to cost to do this type of case. It's going to be mm-hmm. A, B, or C. And, you know, that's it, right? So if it's a family, I've seen, I've seen a couple of family law attorneys who've done flat fee, but they're doing it phased, phased mm-hmm. flat fees. And they're big fees because mm-hmm. one of the big mistakes I see people make is they, because they don't take into account, they don't track time. So they don't have data. So they tend to pick fees that are feel good fees, you know, like mm-hmm. this feels good to me. So I'm mm-hmm. going to do this as my fee. And it's not nearly covering their right. time plus all their overhead and other costs or the time of a hiring person. And then they wonder why I can't grow. So I think there's a place for flat fees, you know, estate planning, you know, there's in estate planning, you can assign flat fees. I'm going to do a simple will package, but you also have to have, you know, outs that are like, okay, when this becomes a complex case and you're now doing two revocable trusts for our joint, you know, like now we have to have something. So if I committed, this is all you're going to pay. Mm-hmm. So we have to make other alternative arrangements for people that meet their needs. But I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of billing. And I think that once you learn how to do it and you learn how to, your team can do it, that it, that it will make a huge difference for you and it'll allow you to expand you know, and be able to pay yeah. people, right? Yeah. Um, because your attorneys are not only covering themselves, but making you a lot of profit. Mm-hmm. You do it they right. Are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I think I could talk with you another hour, but we need to end. Um, so I'm so glad that you were here today and shared with us because I think a lot of people are going to listen to this and walk away with some great information, a lot of gold nuggets, and uh, hopefully, maybe one day we can have you back and talk, go, go into more detail. Um, but thanks so much, Billy, for being here. Thank you. It was, it was a great time. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. If you have, we invite you to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The more five-star reviews we have, the more women law firm owners will be able to positively impact. Your thoughts and opinions are so important to us. If you are a woman law firm owner who wants to scale your law firm to a million dollars or more in gross annual revenue and do it in a way that's sustainable and feels good to you, then we invite you to join us in the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. The League is a community of highly intelligent, goal-oriented, and driven women law firm owners who are excited to support one another on their journeys to becoming wealthy women lawyers. We'll be sharing so much in the league in the coming year, including the exclusive million dollar law firm framework that until now, I've only shared with my private one-to-one clients. For more information and to join us, 
go now to www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash lead. That's www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash lead. League is spelled L-E-A-G-U-E. We look forward to seeing you soon in the league.